back in Canada. Yep. I, uh, you know, dealing with my my visa situation now, I mean, hopefully this gets out and uh, reflects on me favorably in the eyes of the UK government. <laughs> <laughs> Being productive even though he's not in the country. Exactly, exactly. I might be talking about the wrong kind of football, but uh, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Um, today, we're going to bring you uh, something that's been in the works for quite some time. Um, something a little different, obviously, you know, the NFL season is going on, or so we think at this point. Yeah, um, currently it's, uh, we're in week four, and as we're speaking on Twitter, Adam Schefter is uh, adding more people to the COVID reserve list. Yep, including Cam Newton, who is on my fantasy team, so not ideal. Um, but anyway, I mean... The new format of this podcast doesn't necessarily require there to be football going on, which is good, especially in these times. Um, we're going to give you guys a history of the New York Giants. We've been thinking about it a lot uh, in the off offseason, um, and it's something that we've both done a pretty substantial amount of research on, so hopefully you know, it'll be something that everyone can enjoy and We'll be going through um, and describing, you know, pivotal moments, let's say, in the Giants' history. Um, yeah, we're not necessarily giving all the dates and facts right. and every single statistic, but we've essentially scoured their whole timeline and pinpointed these moments that really affected the franchise's history. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, uh, yeah, again, I mean, there's going to be tons of information that we can give you um, that is interesting, but also would make every single podcast episode two and a half hours long. So we don't, we don't want you to do that. We want it to be sort of a quicker, more digestible form of the podcast. And just to give you guys a sense of you know, the history of, uh, of my favorite team, the New York Giants. Um, so yeah, hopefully, hopefully you enjoy it. Anything before we get started, Theo? I think this is uh, long overdue, and uh, yes. welcome back, Rizzoli. Thank you, thank you. It's good to be back. So, thank you. So, um, figured I would start with how I became a fan of the New York Giants. So, admittedly, you know, it was around that stage of time where everybody in our group of friends was kind of deciding... Gotta pick a team. What team they wanted to cheer for. So, I mean, obviously, I chose the New York Giants. Um, you chose the Dolphins. Like a loser. <laughs> my cousin convinced me because, right. uh, funny enough, Bill Parcells, mm -hmm. who we'll mentioned many times throughout this this podcast series, mm -hmm. became the uh, executive vice president or basically president of operations for the Miami Dolphins. Right. And uh, he was really gung-ho about the the whole sh structure change and how he was going to bring a culture change to the organization. <laughs> Unfortunately, it didn't last too long. Yeah. And I've been stuck with the team ever since. <laughs> That's the thing. I mean, you kind of, once you pick a team, you kind of have to stick with it. There's no real, uh, real bandwagoning anyway. So, I mean, for me, just to briefly explain why I became a fan of the Giants, it, it all kind of centered around their drafting of 
Eli Manning. So, obviously, I didn't know too much about the player. He was drafted in 03, so what would that make me? 04. 04, so 11 or 12 years old at that point. Um, I was just starting to kind of get into football, and I'd heard that they had drafted Peyton Manning's brother. I'd heard that Peyton Manning was great, so I took an interest. Um, And, yeah, I mean, living in Canada gives you kind of the advantage of you're not necessarily locked to a specific region when you're choosing a team. Well, before before the internet, there was only regional television right. that showed the games. So it would mainly be, especially living in the 90s in, in Toronto, mm-hmm. would they would show Bills games and Cowboys games. Right. Because the Cowboys were really popular. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, a lot of people picked along those lines. I was like, now you have a variety of options because you're not necessarily tied to, to Buffalo. Right. Like, a lot of people from Toronto, we do make the trip on Sundays to to Buffalo. Yeah. And that's why there's a bigger connection. Mm-hmm. And in the early 2000s, they would come up for a couple games throughout the season. Remember yeah. that? They yeah. They played in the Rogers Center. Yeah, exactly. They started rolling that out. But, I mean, at the time, I don't think the Bills were too great. You know, maybe early 2000s. So I decided to stick with the Giants. And, um, you know, my love for the team kind of consistently evolved through the years. And I guess it kind of culminated in, you know, them winning the Super Bowl in 2007. And obviously, you know, 18-1. New England Patriots. You know, they beat the Patriots, which obviously we will address at some point, you know, later on. Um but yeah, I just it just culminated in the sense of like being there and like belonging in a certain way. I don't know, when you cheer for a team, you kind of have that sense of like, you know, something you can get behind, some some yeah. a form of connection you can have with uh with other people, but I found that Eli was the what hooked me and then obviously the the Super Bowl victory is what uh kind of kept me going and and to this day I'm a I'm a fan of the team. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, do you remember anything about, about the Giants in the early 2000s at all, or is it mostly just, just the Super Bowl? Honestly, early 2000s, you know, them losing to the Ravens. Right. I mean, yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, like Kurt Warner being on the team for a, a brief stint. Kerry Collins was there. I mean, Kerry Collins took them to the Super Bowl, um... Yeah, but it's weird to think of someone other than, let's say, Eli <laughs> in the Giants jersey for me. Um, that's, you know, who I grew up watching. But, yeah, I guess, you know, we'll go through it uh, as well, like, as you mentioned, the 2000 NFC Championship and all that. Um, but I figured we should get started at the very beginning. So the Giants were founded in 1919. Uh, by a guy named Charles Stoneham, who also happened to own the New York baseball giants. Um, so he was real original in how he decided to name the team. So the football part was added in to avoid any sort of confusion, which is why you would hear people calling them the New York football giants. Still used to this day. I think it's their trademark name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Um, but yeah, that's why you would hear them say New York football giants to avoid any confusion. Um, so due to some struggles and the fledgling popularity of the game at the time, I mean, this is just after World War One, 
um, which is like a hundred years ago, which is really trippy to think about. Um, so due to due to that those circumstances, uh, Stoneham decided to sell to Tim Mara, who was a New York businessman, who is actually rumored to have made his fortune as a bookmaker at the time. Um, is that a conflict of interest? I don't know. I think maybe today it would be really sketchy. Maybe in nineteen. <laughs> in, you know, 1925, um, when he bought the team. It's probably just diversifying his yeah, portfolio. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that was sold to Tim Mara for $500. So adjusted for inflation, this has an approximate value in today's money of just under $7,500. Obviously, you know, it's totally different. Um, but you can still see the value in buying a sports franchise. So imagine, you know, being able to buy a sports franchise for the price of a 2003, you know, Chevy Impala, basically. Is, is a Chevy Impala really worth $7,500? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's what our buddy Owen would tell you. Exactly, yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting ripped off. But um, So things were pretty slow going for the Mara family. Like, I, I don't think that at the time football had really been introduced i mean for us obviously we've we do a podcast about football so it's a little bit different in the sense of like the nfl has built up this this lore around itself you know um you know nfl films we used to watch the nfl network all the time you know um but before then i mean american football was really kind of evolving as a game and it wasn't necessarily the most popular thing yeah, in the states. I, I remember reading at the time it was mostly centered around baseball and and boxing. Mhm. Yeah, exactly. So with that being said, I mean the team had already been sold, but things were slow going for Mara in the beginning as football had yet to reach its height of popularity in the US. Um, but eventually operations for the football team were turned over to Tim's sons, uh, Wellington and Jack Mara. Um, this was also rumored to be a ploy to avoid creditors. So if it's in your son's name, that doesn't <laughs> it doesn't count against your books, I guess. <laughs> yeah, the bank isn't coming after you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so despite winning their first championship in 1927, the Giants didn't really gain any notoriety or fame until a player named Red Grange uh, and the Chicago Bears came to visit them at the Polo Grounds, um, and that was a game that sold seventy thousand tickets to spectators and brought in enough money to keep the team afloat. So at the time, obviously, you know, early thirties and late twenties, the Chicago Bears were kind of the team in football. So seventy thousand—that's yeah. like. That's a huge cash. That's a lot of people that came to watch this game. That's like the equivalent of doing like a a music festival for the weekend and just surviving off of that. Pretty much. Pretty much. Um, But yeah, I mean, thankfully for the Bears, you know, they were able to kind of keep the team afloat at the polo grounds, um, which, as you can imagine, were grounds where polo was played. Um, I don't know if any... Have you heard of polo before? Have you seen people playing polo? No, I don't think so. No? Uh, as far as I understand, it's like you play it on horses. You know how water polo, they have the ball and they try to throw it in the net? 
Oh, it's the one with the mallets and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So. Like, I'm aware of it existing, <laughs> but I'm not aware of anybody who plays it. Right. I feel like it's, uh, it seems like it would be a very ritzy sport nowadays. Oh, yeah. And even, even back then, I'm sure it was huge. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, you know, it was, they basically shared, uh, grounds with the polo grounds, uh, in, in New York. So the... Bears and the Giants kind of evolved into the big rivalry of the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Giants would lose to them, for example, in the 1933 NFL championship game, um, which is one of the first ones to kind of bear that NFL name. Mm-hmm. Um, but they lost in those. It happened to be the first year that the playoff system was established as well for the NFL. So the, the championships before then, to my understanding, would just be awarded to the best team in the regular season. More European-like. Right, exactly. As opposed to it being like a single-game elimination-style kind of round-robin uh, situation. Um, but this kind of leads up to the first, you know, kind of pivotal moment in Giants history, uh, in our opinion, which is the sneakers game. So that would be the 1934 NFL championship. So it was it was played on a cold and icy winter day in 1934 when the Giants and Bears met at the Polo Grounds for a rematch of last year's championship game. So they had they had lost to the Bears in 1933. Um, players like Ken Strong, Mel Hine, and Steve Owen, who would go on to coach the Giants for 23 years, played against a formidable Bears team and were down 10 to three at halftime. This is when equipment manager Ray Flaherty noticed that his team seemed to be having some trouble getting traction on the field. At halftime, he remembered that he had keys to the equipment room at Manhattan College and asked a tailor named Abe Cohen to go up and see if he could find sneakers for his team. So instead of wearing, you know, the kind of mandated cleats, they figured that you would get way better traction on the field if you were just wearing like a pair of sneakers. Um, so apparently there was a lot of traffic on the day. <laughs> like I, I saw videos of people explaining it and they're like, is he going to make it on time? He's kind of rushing and like, imagine, you know, imagine being at a game and then just getting, and it's not like the, the shoes like fit all the players properly at all. You know, it was just like, they managed to cobble together like 11 pairs of random shoes that may or may not fit properly. Um, so it's just kind of, it just goes to show like the, the state of the game back then where it was like, yeah, it, it was so this, informal at the time. Exactly. It wasn't this whole big like production. It was more like, obviously you could just grab some shoes <laughs> and put them on and just like, figure it out Win the championship. Exactly. Um, so basically the guy comes back with 11 pairs of random sneakers from Manhattan college. Um, and the Giants actually come back to win the game by scoring 27 unanswered points in the fourth quarter. <laughs> you think that might have uh, helped a little bit? I think so, yeah. I think so. Um, it, uh, it certainly helped with the traction and everything. So they ended up coming back to win uh, their first kind of NFL championship. Um, there was a player on the Bears who was pretty well known at the time. His name was Bronco Nagurski, and he said that what a killer name. Adam. I know, I know. Imagine being named Bronco with a K. And it, it wasn't even like, you know, the Denver Broncos. It was like your parents named you Bronco. 
It's like being called Wolf. I know, I know. That's pretty badass. But doesn't it just sound like a football player's name? Like, yeah, it sounds like, like he tapes up all his cuts. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he just ready, like already shows up to the game with a half-broken nose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah. He is quoted as saying in, in, in like, a later interview um, that... You know, basically, that the Giants just outsmarted them. Like what what they did was not illegal; it was just kind of unexpected um, and kind of innovative, um, and that's what allowed them to win win their first championship. So, obviously, that helped to kind of cement the Giants' name in NFL lore. And obviously, you know, the franchise didn't necessarily struggle as much like after winning um, after winning that championship game. Um, obviously one of the players from that championship game, his name is Steve Owen, um, also went on to coach the team for the next 23 years. Um, so he was a player coach, uh, for a portion of that, but then ended up coaching the team for another 20 years, uh, you know, going on. So that was kind of the big first, uh, slice of, let's say Giants history because, Obviously, that allowed them to keep playing and keep afloat as a franchise uh, in in York. So, yeah, <laughs> that's basically where we're at. What do you think of all that, Theo? I just think like the contrast with today, where all these players want to wear different types of sneakers mm-hmm. with different types of designs on them. Yeah, and the NFL regulates that to the T. Oh yeah, and you're they only get to wear these like special custom ones during practice. Mm-hmm. Just funny to see how <laughs> over the last hundred years how things have changed completely. Yeah. Like it's something that they didn't even come to think of until the last moment, but they're literally using their feet all at, the time. All the time. Mm-hmm. And it's like a main their main tool right. to playing the game. Right. What it reminds me of kind of is the uh, well, the informality of it all, like as I mentioned before, but you remember that game that was the Eagles and it was Eagles and Lions, I think, where we're just completely covered in snow and you see photos of like Megatron being tackled and like all the snow is stuck in his face mask and like LaShawn McCoy was still making people miss like in the snow and stuff. Like none of that would have happened had it not been for, you know, a game like this, you know, a footwear innovation. But figured it was a good place to, you know, kind of get it started. Um, obviously yeah even player coaches like yeah. I know that's a thing that still happens in soccer but but barely. Certain, but barely it's only to a certain extent when the team is really underperforming mm-hmm. and there's a guy on the team that was already going to make the transition to coaching right but they just wanted a year where he, he sort of played and got the lay of the land and understood where his player his players stood right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. whereas like here like in the NFL that would not happen at all anymore well there's a higher degree of specialization obviously now with NFL coaching as it was before you know it was it was a lot of kind of like a three yards and a cloud of dust with the occasional pass thrown in but now obviously there's you know different concepts and everything the game has evolved over the years um but I think that's a Mm-hmm. That's a pretty pivotal event for to start off with. Yeah. So, I just wanted to add uh, one thing because obviously the next uh, next episode we're gonna kind of jump ahead in time, but I did want to add um, that there was one player um, that the Giants 
signed in 1948, and his name was uh, Emelyn Tonell. So he was the first black player in the team's history, and he was an undrafted free agent who signed with the team after walking into Tim Mara's office and asking for a tryout. Um, so he would go on to earn the nickname of Offense on Defense, uh, where he recorded a team record of 74 in, uh, interceptions in his career. So in 1952, he gained 923 yards on interception returns, which was more yards than the NFL rushing leader had that year. So imagine. <laughs> this guy's running circles around everybody, man. <laughs> like, he's absolutely Wouldn't crazy. they just think about putting him on offense afterwards? I know, I know. You would think. And, like, a bunch of people played multiple positions. Like, he would play offense and defense all the time. So I don't know why they wouldn't just throw him in there, you know? But whatever. Yeah. Not my decision. But, yeah. And then, also, I read that... Because, obviously... You know, a lot of these players, uh, you know, going into the 40s, or late 30s, early 40s, uh, served in World War II. And, and there are a few, a few players that are honored in the Giants' kind of ring of honor who played for the Giants and then went to war. Some came back, some didn't, right? Um, but Emlyn Tunnell actually was honored by the Coast Guard because he saved a man from drowning. It was in 1946, but it was still like within the army navy sort of context. So not only was he, you know, one of the best players, undrafted. He just like walked in. He also saved a man's life from from drowning. So I figured that was worth mentioning as well. But yeah, um, next up, I think we'll mention kind of the, f- the 50s where the momentum of football and football in New York kind of picks up a little bit more um, and, and hopefully, you know, transition onto, onto the rest of it. So anything to add, Theo? I'm just looking forward to it. You know, yeah. it's like it's in, in, in its infancy right now, but you can tell it's slowly developing. Yeah, exactly. Um, let us know what you think. Um, hit us up on the Check Down Charlie's Twitter page, and uh, yeah, hope you enjoyed.